This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Politics Roundtable on 103.9, 1450WKXL, NHCockRadio.com. I'm Ken Dale, and on the panel, two-term U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, a former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and joining us for the first time, journalist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Welcome, Alicia. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. Well, the $900 billion, 6,100-page COVID relief bill is now becoming a reality. Why did it take so long? Was it a fair compromise? And what do you make of the fights regarding the overall cost? And Alicia, we will start with you. Well, I think the reason it took so long in the fights is because it's a $6,000 bill that probably could have been four pages. I mean, it's a 6,000-page bill that could have been four pages. And I think that's shameful. I think it's shameful if there's $1 worth of pork in this. American families are struggling. A lot of them are struggling. Over 70% of the populace wanted some kind of stimulus package for COVID relief. And what Congress gave us was, here's a few crumbs, which Nancy Pelosi opposed in the past, giving us crumbs, but here's a few crumbs, and here's a whole lot of other pork that we wanted to get along the way. I think everybody failed us. Paul? Well, you know, I mean, come on, crumbs, a three martini lunch deduction. That's hardly a crumb. I mean, the four (laughs) season, you know, the four seasons in New York City is closed. But, you know, it's going to help restaurants all over the country when we're done with COVID so that uh, businesses can deduct the three martini lunch. That that seems very critical. And that only costs three hundred and fifty eight billion dollars over 10 years. So, I mean, what's a few crumbs, $358 billion worth of uh, three martini lunches? But, you know, look, there's some short-term relief, uh, 11 weeks of of extended uh, unemployment help. Uh, There is some help for small businesses. Um, One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is there's $15 billion in there for uh, performance venues, uh, small entertainment venues, um, small entertainment businesses that uh, are critical to our well-being and to the economy and have been decimated. Um, So that's important. There's some funding for the government, so it won't stop. Uh, There's also a a very interesting compromise um, uh, funding for clean energy that was a bipartisan effort. Uh, that really is going to kickstart some clean energy. So uh, there's something in here to hate uh, for everybody. And Matt, what do you hate about it? Uh, there, there is something. I, I mean, I, I actually have to say, I kind of half agree with Alicia on this one. It is sort of funny that the deal that ended up coming through this week is kind of sort of a deal that Mitch McConnell put forward months ago. And I know that the Democrats in the House put some spin on it and said, well, it's really very, very different. But it's suspiciously similar to what Senate Republicans were putting forward as sort of their bottom line. The the place where I half disagree is that I do think that a lot of the holdup came down to a lot of posturing around the debt and the cost 
Um, you know, you saw uh, editorials in the Wall Street Journal saying, oh, well, this is just a sort of a CYA for, for governors and politicians. I, I think Alicia's totally right. This is really desperately needed help for struggling families. And the thing that gives me sort of the biggest heartburn about it, the biggest eye roll about it, is the fact that there was all this posturing about, oh, the cost. I do detect a little bit in there of, oh, well, there's an incoming Democratic administration. So that means it's debt o'clock for the Republican Party in the Senate, who are suddenly remembering their fiscal conservatism um, conveniently uh, at this moment. And I just note that it was like five minutes ago in our political lifetimes that we passed the 2017 tax cut during a strong economy with 4% unemployment and that handed out the lowest income folks $70 on average in tax cuts, the top 1%, 60,000 bucks in tax cuts. So we could afford all this then. The cost, the 10 year cost of that was $1.8 trillion. This is exactly half of that. So I'm not sure that I got all of the like posturing about the cost and like, you know, why we had to have this hold up over the last few months just to end up in the place that Senate Republicans said that they could kind of land on months ago. But you know, sometimes that procrastination is the only way to get there in Washington. And so I, I think it's a compromise that everyone should be able to live with. Well, pretty much Nancy Pelosi said we had the holdup because Donald Trump still had a chance to be president. I mean, that's pretty much what it came down to, right? Well, that's what she said. <laughs> Look, Nancy Pelosi doesn't get away unscathed here. This is somebody who in that tax cut bill called $1,000 crumbs and is out there championing 600 for people. Everybody's being political. And the problem is by being political, they're doing it on the backs of struggling Americans. And I think Republicans, Democrats in Washington, I think they, as I said, have failed us because what they did is this time they actually gave us crumbs that aren't going to help a lot of people. You want to give billions of dollars to venues that no one can afford to go to. That's why you're giving them money because you're not helping people enough to be liquid enough to go have a good time. And look, my family's not going to be writing off my lunches because we're not going out all the time. Why? A, we're in a global pandemic. And B, like most families, we're not making as much as we used to before because everything's shut down. So it's, it's, you know, money going out one side to the other so everyone can say, look how great I am. And the fact is you're not going to see a change in the American family's economy for the next three months. Does that mean that this is a... You know, let, hang let on you. one... Oh, go on ahead, go ahead, Paul. Second. Go ahead, you go. Hang on one second, because I just want to push back a little bit, because I actually know something about uh, the aid for the entertainment venues as a small example of uh, the kind of knee-jerk reaction that we hear often uh, about uh, funding things like, you know, how to, why, why bother helping small businesses and not-for-profits like entertainment venues? It's because they employ people. And so when you offer them assistance of 45% of their 2019 revenue before everything collapsed, what you're doing is, uh, and, and you're targeting it towards keeping people on payroll and for operations, it's not because you're making, uh, you're, you're, you're directly saying to people, well, you can't, be, we're opening these venues even though you can't afford to go there. What we're doing is we're keeping people employed. We're keeping businesses that are a critical sector of the economy. 4.3% uh, uh, of GDP is entertainment and arts. That's a bigger sector of the economy uh, than transportation and construction. And you are helping to keep people employed. So it's an example of something which could superficially be said to be a waste and why are you bothering to do it? But it's propping up a significant part 
of the business of the country and helping it get through the pandemic. But providing- well, wouldn't you say that that's that it's 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 not enough in a way, right? The, the, the way the Democrats are trying to position this is it's a down payment, right? They expect there to be a follow-on. I think, Alicia, the point you were making, I, I guess I turned this question around to you, is if it is insufficient for families like yours, for families like mine, does that mean we need to have some kind of a some kind of a follow-up action in the first quarter? Or is this going to suddenly turn into you know, like I was saying before, dead o'clock from the Republican perspective, and now we can't afford anything further because it's all a waste. Look, if you told me a year ago, I'd be sitting here advocating for taxpayer dollar funded handouts to American families, I'd tell you, you are out of your mind as a lifelong conservative. But the reality is we are in an unprecedented time. We are in a place we've never been before. And the government does have to have to help families. The government cannot just keep employing people um, at the levels they are. I mean, you give it, I haven't looked into what venue specifically, but you give millions of dollars to a venue that employs 60 people just to keep the venue going. That money can be better spent on those people who would end up being unemployed and on their families. There's just a more fiscally conservative way to do it. And yes, I believe families need help. I believe in increased unemployment benefits. I actually thought it should be more of a sliding scale for the $600 per week. I know a lot of people who simply stayed out of work because they were making more money than they were before. That wasn't untenable. The 300, that's gonna be better for some, not as for others. But I think, you know, they wanted to spend eight months trying to figure this out. They could have done it more efficiently. It could have been based on what your previous income was as opposed to just here's a here's a check for y'all handout and it, it doesn't have any metrics as to what you made before or how you can sustain your own lifestyle it was it was done kind of too for a 6000 page bill yeah it's interesting i would just kind of follow up to that by saying that in, if you watched the senate debate um, you know, it, there, there was some Republican, some conservative pushback against some of the uh, uh, provisions in here, some, some of the mechanisms uh, here to stop the economic slide, um, you know, and some of it was getting caught up with the Fed's lending program. You know, that was that was Pat Toomey out of uh, Pennsylvania. You had Ron Johnson, who's up for reelection in 2022. Um, you know, kind of on the skeptical side of direct checks. But then you have potential presidential contender, Josh Hawley out of Missouri, uh, putting forward a, a really populist version of conservatism, sort of the um, the sweet spot of Trumpism and advocating as you are, Alicia, for bigger checks from kind of a conservative standpoint saying, let's not give money to small venues. Uh, let's give money directly to Americans. Let them, you know, decide how to spend it, have it be more of a a, a sliding scale and just just have it be bigger. And I, I have to say, you know, from from just a pure politics standpoint, that does seem to be a formula, a winning formula uh, politically these days. That seems to be the sweet spot for Trump. That seems to be what Hawley's trying to tap into. And I think Democrats ignore this kind of uh, populist push at their peril. I, I hear you, Paul. I mean, I, I kind of believe in keeping small employers going, especially in a state like New Hampshire. But I, I do think that there is a, a little bit of uh, an upper hand that Democrats have seeded here when it comes to um, a conservative case for handing money to American families who are struggling. Well, we mentioned it was a $900 billion COVID relief bill, but the bill itself is well over a trillion dollars when you consider all the pork that's involved. Uh, shouldn't more have gone to 
uh, American families that's sending aid to other countries at this point in time? Well, I think so. And I, you know, I'm not one of the Republicans who says we shouldn't assist other countries. I believe as one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest country in the world um, and a humane country, I believe there are times we should help other nations in need. That's part of our greatness is both our ability and willingness to do it. Now is not that time, however, because now we are the nation that is suffering. And you have to isolationist a little bit in a global pandemic because our people do have to come first. All right. Before we move well, on, any any other co- reaction, Paul? Yeah, you know, look, wh- whether it's a global pandemic or not, uh, there are purposes beyond humanitarian aid uh, to uh, for foreign aid. Uh, in, in the geopolitical reality of the world today, a highly interconnected, tiny world connected instantaneously over the internet and facing adversaries like China and Russia. Um, hacking us, uh, competing with us um, relentlessly. Uh, frankly, the, the assistance or aid uh, or, um, that we provide to other countries is absolutely essential for our national security. Yeah, the only thing I'd pick up on there is that one of the holdups we were referring to before was the reluctance on the part of Senate Republicans to give any further state and local financial assistance. And there's just a very interesting political inversion that's happened here. You know, 10 years ago, Paul, when you were in Congress, you probably remember this pretty darn well when it was Obama trying to come up with a relief package that became the uh, ARA, the American uh, Relief and Recovery Act. It was liberals who were concerned that giving fiscal relief to states was going to allow Republican governors to take the help, take the handout, make themselves look fiscally responsible, and then turn around and blast Washington for big spending. And now you've seen the tables turned politically, and it's uh, the conservatives who are worried about that. And kind of to Ken's point, I'm not sure I really understand the reluctance there. Um, You know, if you kind of look across the board, it's it's certainly Republican-led states that are having uh, as much difficulty, as much financial difficulty. And that is the kind of aid that um, isn't just about kind of balancing books and covering butts. Um, you know, it has a direct flow down effect to teachers and firefighters and, you know, people who, who end up doing the work in our states. So, I, you know, that's that's a wrinkle where I, I I just think there's something weird politically that's happening here. I think what's happening <laughs> is Republicans, and I am one of them, long have um, an aversion to handing out dollars for others to manage or just in general. Like, that's not what we do, right? We, we don't want that. Less spending, less handing out of dollars. And so it's just ingrained in us. That state money is needed. And I think people are coming around to that. Um, but, it, you know, it's ingrained in you for a long time. We don't do that. And we've had to change our minds. And we've had to change our theories during this last 10 months because reality is in our face. But it's hard to change a lifetime of concept. But the other thing is, let's not forget where we really are politically and where we are is if Democrats come up with an idea, Republicans are going to hate it. If Republicans come up with an idea, Democrats are going to hate it. And that at the end of the day is really all that's going on in Washington. Time for a break and we'll be back with more Politics Roundtable on 103.9, 1450WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. Welcome back to Politics Roundtable. Ken Kale here with two-term U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, 
former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. Moving on to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She lost an internal Democratic election among her peers in Congress to be named to a very prestigious, powerful committee, and she lost it by a lot. And Paul, you've been there. You've sat inside the room in caucus elections like this. What do you make of uh, that result? Well, first of all, um, you know, the, uh, the atmosphere uh, inside the Democratic caucus uh, for that vote uh, was interesting. And um, what I hear from sources, it was, it was pretty tense. Um, there was a lot of last minute arm twisting and politicking going on. Uh, AOC, of course, is uh, uh, loved by progressives, um, uh, not so much by moderates and centrists in the Democratic Party, uh, or certainly uh, further to the right. Um, she is a media magnet. She is a star. And um, uh, when a relatively new member of Congress is such a star, uh, you can imagine that there are other long-term members of Congress or even in leadership, most of whom are quite moderate or centrists uh, in their practical approach to politics, are not necessarily the same kind of fans. So beyond the politicking that went on in the caucus, there was a lot of, uh, of, of whipping and vote counting and politicking that went on before anybody arrived at the caucus because a uh, representative Kathleen Rice uh, and Ocasio-Cortez had been battling behind the scenes for weeks to secure a seat on the Energy and Commerce Committee because that is where all the action is going to be around what is now clearly a very ambitious climate agenda uh, from the White House. We are going to we are going to see, we, we expect some real action in a bold way. And the Energy and Commerce Committee is where uh, that happens. It's a very, very powerful committee. Um, and what happened was uh, 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 there was a private meeting of the Steering and Policy Committee. Um, Democrats were uh, forced essentially to choose between Kathleen Rice and Ocasio. Cortez in a very tense and very awkward secret ballot. Um, and Rice ultimately won a very lopsided victory, 46 uh, to 13. Um, and moderate Democrats, some moderate Democrats openly criticized Ocasio-Cortez. And in a way, this is somewhat of a follow-on to the criticisms that we've talked about on this show and that we heard in the wake of the election when moderate Democrats pointed to the fact that they won a big and handily in 2018 with a centrist moderate approach um, to the electorate uh, and that the language of the progressive left, uh, whether it was about uh, defunding the police or which was a, the extreme example um, or other uh, language and messages from the left, um, were not helpful to the Democratic Party. I think this vote reflects some of that same uh, uh, dissension among Democrats, the divide in the party 
there is a minority a minority progressive wing at this point and a majority who um, uh, will we're, are willing to take an incremental and moderate approach. Uh, Matt Robeson and I uh, talked to Representative Steve Cohen from Tennessee, a member of the Judiciary Committee, very progressive, extremely progressive, uh, who pointed out that nevertheless, he was uh, supporting leadership in, in taking um, uh, steps that were not as progressive as he might want. So I think this vote uh, reflects some of that. So, Alicia, what does this defeat uh, tell us about AOC standing among Democrats or whether the power of the left is really growing in the party? I think it's very telling. I mean, I think Paul hit the nail on the head in many things. He said, look, if you look at the 2020 election cycle, the American people rejected socialism. AOC is a pronounced socialist. That's what she believes in, in all of her policies. What happens? Look at the Democratic presidential primary. They put up Joe Biden clearly a moderate, not one of the extremists. They didn't put up a Bernie Sanders. Look at the results of the 2020 election in November. Put aside the presidential race, because I don't really think those results had anything to do with policy. I think it had a lot to do with personality. Um, and look at New Hampshire. Look at the country. Republicans did very well. Moderates did very well. Why? The American people have rejected socialism. They don't want it. They don't want the Bernie Sanders AOC scope of America. And the Democrats in Congress recognize that. They recognize their successes and they reject it too. I actually think it's very good for, from a conservative standpoint, that the Democrats have noticed that that's not what the American people want. And on AOC, I have never seen a person more out of touch than Congresswoman, this Congresswoman. When she got the vaccine the other day, I was actually enraged and I don't get enraged. I like people on the left. I like people on the right. I'm not an uber partisan, nothing to do with that. I was equally mad at Marco Rubio that a young woman and in his case, a young man, but in her case, someone who talks more about the haves and haves nots and the splits of privilege than any other member of Congress would use her privilege to get a vaccine that could have gone to a senior or a frontline worker. She should be ashamed of herself. And I think she showed her true colors. Your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I think Alicia's totally right. I mean, you know, look, if you look at polling, there are two interesting numbers that I can throw out there. One is that 52% of Democrats identify themselves as either moderate or conservative. So that tells you something about where the center of gravity in the party is. The other is there was a great polling presentation by a Republican uh, polling firm about a year back that showed that any question that they sprinkled the word socialism on led to a 10 point increase in support for the Republican position. Um, you know, it's like magic conservative pixie dust that you can put on your messaging <laughs> on the Republican side. And I don't say that in a negative way. I wish that we had democratic magic pixie dust. We don't, but I, I think Alicia's totally right. It's, it's weird to me that the, uh, the, the messaging advice that we seem to be getting from democratic socialists is we know that socialism is like super not popular as a concept. Let's lead with our chin on this. That seems that we're going to force the American people to absolutely love us. We're going to keep saying our stuff until they agree. I've never been in an argument with someone where that strategy has worked, but I'm looking forward to it working sometime in the future. And so is AOC, apparently. <laughs> All right. Well, now the question is, does this setback for AOC uh, make it more or less likely that she will run against uh, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer in a New York Senate primary in, in 2022. What are your thoughts on that? I'd vote more 
personally. Um, there, look, there isn't a great track record here in New York recently. We saw this with the uh, far left. What's the name of the Sex and the City actress who took on Andrew Cuomo? It did not go well. Um, she she lost by. Uh, some margin. I, I think they're still trying, they have mathematicians trying to figure out the margin of loss there. Um, but, you know, what tends to happen with House members is they reach a point uh, where they decide, look, it's, it's up or out. And I don't think AOC is at that point. She's in a very interesting kind of catbird seat. You actually saw that this week. There's kind of a procedural thing that members of the House go through where they have to vote on the rule for a bill before they vote on the bill itself. I'll spare you the weeds about that, but the AOC and her and her squad colleagues use that opportunity for the vote on the COVID relief package to vote against the rule, which was their way of sending a message to the leadership that with an ultra thin Democratic majority in the House in the upcoming session, they are going to have a great deal of influence over whether the House majority can do what Nancy Pelosi wants it to do. So she's in a powerful position. But I think that this vote for this committee seat showed that the handwriting is on the wall for her, that she does not have the broader support in the caucus. She has a lot of relationships to repair from her support for challengers to sitting Democratic members of Congress. And she may be reaching this up or out position where she thinks her better long-term trajectory over the next five or 10 years to really make an impact is going to be to, to aim high and try and take out Schumer. So I would say moderately more likely that she decides to get into a primary. Paul, will she take on Schumer in 2022? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just, I was listening to Matt and I, you know, Matt, Matt's been around, Matt's been around the hill uh, in various guises in a long time. And I was there for a little while and um, up, up and out certainly was, uh, is, is true. I mean, it was at work when I made the decision, <laughs> um, perhaps a naive decision to uh, run for an open U.S. Senate seat in 2010. And I got clobbered, as did a lot of Democrats. It was a pretty bad timing. But what I was looking at was sort of very different than AOC, but it was kind of up or, up or out. I had started my uh, elected political career late. Um, and I didn't, you know, I mean, I, basically in Congress, there are two ways to power. Uh, you, out, you outlive the rest of them or you outraise the rest of them and contribute to everybody. Those are the two uh, paths to power. And I came from a small state, was never going to outraise anybody. And I was a, an old white guy and wasn't going to outlive anybody. So um, I took a shot at the U.S. Senate seat. There's a lot uh, of other things involved. For AOC, it's a very, very different calculation. And this may be a signal for her that her uh, path to power um, is pretty narrow in the U.S. House, that she's not made enough friends. She's certainly not raising money and giving it to people. She is young enough to outlast people, but she's perhaps saying, well, you know, here on the Hill, my progressive politics uh, play well on, uh, uh, on YouTube, but they may not play well with my colleagues. And if I go back to New York, well, that's a very, very kind of progressive liberal uh, bastion in the entire country. It may be the most diverse progressive um, uh, electorate that I could find. Um, Chuck Schumer's an old white guy at this point. Um, why don't I take him on with some fire and brimstone 
bring out uh, all kinds of unexpected voters in New York, create a coalition of Latino, Latina, uh, Black uh, voters, uh, other ethnicities, really galvanize people around a progressive agenda and um, see what happens. Uh, who knows? That might be a, a play for her um, because, you know, in the end, uh, what's she getting done in Congress? Yeah, I'm not sure she necessarily cares what her colleagues in Washington think of her. She's publicly pushed back against Pelosi and others and anyone who's not part of the extreme left progressive movement. I think her popularity has, you know, been through social media from the masses that agree with her. And I think when you get to Washington, you somehow get insulated and see what you want to see and losing within your own caucus. You know, she could say to herself, OK, well, the caucus isn't who the votes I'm looking for and the public loves me because she's seeing only the public that loves her. So she might take a shot. I think, you know, I actually mentioned earlier the vaccine thing. I was kind of pleased to see the pushback from very liberal Democrats as well. Um, I wonder the bigger notice to her than that vote in caucus is going to be if she recognizes the pushback from her own progressive out in the real world, the people who support her, support her and vote for her that pushed back on her and gave her a wake up call that she's got to remember who she is. That might have more of a play than losing in a caucus. What do we make of the uh, giant Russian hack of the U.S. government? Uh, is this just uh, going to turn into a typical partisan back and forth? And Paul, we, we're going to go to you first for this one. Comrade Kale. You ask about Russian hack, I deny, deny, deny. There was no hack. This is made up story by opponents of uh, President Trumpolinsky, our great comrade, who we should erect a statue to in the, the Moscow, in the Kremlin, a statue of Donald Trump holding Bible upside down. Because there is no hack. We do not hack. We would never interfere in policy and politics of another country. That is all I have to say about this matter. I just want to know, Matt told me, Congressman, that you had that in you to do that invitation, and I was so hoping I'd have the opportunity to hear it, and I get to, my day is made. That's why we started with you, oh, Paul. <laughs> we wanted to make Alicia's day, for sure. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is time for a break. We'll have more Politics Roundtable coming up on 1039-1450 WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back to Politics Roundtable. Final segment, Ken Kale here with two-term U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. President Trump ghosted a lot of the big news last week, including things that should have been victory laps for him, like uh, countries recognizing Israel and the rollout of the two COVID vaccines. Except for election-related tweets, he's been pretty invisible in, in recent weeks, just like Joe Biden. Is this a missed opportunity for him, for Republicans, and even for the country, Alicia? Uh, look, I'm not going to defend that the president here. I think you've got thousands of people dying a day. Per day, it's the equivalent of a 9-11. And I'm saddened that our commander-in-chief and our leader has not come out and given words of comfort and calm, particularly coming into the holiday season. Um, he's focused on the election. I know he's upset he lost, but he did. And despite claims of fraudulence, you know, countrywide that would have overturned an election, it's just proven not to be there. And, 
he's still in office and he's still our president and the country is in great pain right now. And he's got, you know, three weeks to step to the plate and show us he cares about us or he will prove why Joe Biden won. Your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I agree. I mean, substantively, yes. I I mean, it's pretty clear that his failure of leadership on COVID is why he lost office. There's a very good political case to be made that had he performed better on the pandemic, he would have been reelected. We've been talking about a two-term Trump. And now in his waning days in office, yes, being out front on the vaccine and saying that it's safe and reliable and that everyone should get it as soon as it's available, that would help. Um, Messaging on mask wearing, you know, during this long, dark winter that we're going to go through would help. But, I, you know, the other piece of this is that politically, I, I do think it's kind of malpractice. I mean, we still have these two Senate races that are outstanding over the next couple of weeks. And I just don't understand politically why you wouldn't take a victory lap on the kinds of, you know, victories that you just mentioned, um, you know, as well as, um, I mean, there are some there's some actual accomplishments that he could be touting at this point. I mean, what you were saying about Israel, that, that's real. There are countries that are recognizing Israel today that were not four years ago. And he did that. That is that is something that Republicans and Democrats have traditionally supported. Um, you know, he has a track record here, uh, a stricter regulation of vaping. That seems like a pretty good thing. The continuation of the campaign against ISIS that he got to essentially finish off. That is a, a good thing. Criminal justice reform, bipartisan, you know, with Cory Booker, a good thing. So, you know, there are both recent accomplishments and actual wins from his administration that he could be talking about right now on his way out that would be helpful in his Senate race, that would burnish his legacy. Maybe he wants to run again in 2024. It's it's sort of baffling in a way that, that he's kind of continuing to pursue his white whales instead. Uh, and in a way, from everything we've seen in the last four years, it's it's not that baffling. Well, you know, that's why I said- Listen, pre- sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Alicia. I would say I previously mentioned I don't think that presidential race was determined on policy. I think it was personality. And I think Matt hit the nail on the head. Look, suburban women made the decision in November. And if you were to write down a list of policy accomplishments or supports or things he killed as president, when it comes to a policy standpoint, I think you're going to have a lot of suburban women who agreed with his positions who voted against him because of personality. And what we're seeing happen now is that personality manifest again to prove the point. And that's unfortunate. Listen, I, let me just jump in because I appreciate the measured tones of my colleagues on the panel. Uh, measured tones are really good, but you're dealing with something else uh, with this person. Um, uh, let me give you a quote. Megalomania is a mental state in which the affected individual is subject to an obsession with power and the belittling of others, as well as feelings of grandiosity. Its characteristics are similar to that of grandiose narcissism, with the exception of a few variations. Uh, I see what what we're hearing uh, from the White House, from leaks, from meetings in the White House, is that this is full-blown crazy. Um, Trump is now... Uh, complaining about Pence. He's turning on McConnell. He's turning on White House counsel Cipollone. Even televangelist Pat Robertson says uh, there's something unhinged. He's in an alternative reality. Um, So he's incapable of doing anything presidential at this point because his mental illness has so overcome him in the wake 
of being a loser, something which he has never apparently experienced in his life, that his megalomania, his narcissism, his pathological state uh, is in full flower inside the White House. So not only is he not capable of helping anybody, he never really was, but he cannot see anything. It's like it's a Shakespearean King King Lear moment of madness that is going that is going on here um, inside the White House. Frankly, all the talk that he continues to have trying to get a circle of equally find a circle of equally deranged people to talk about martial law, to to call 150 Republicans to try to get them to overturn the election. Um, it is crazy time, and it is extremely, extremely dangerous. Um, right now, the greatest threat to the national security of the United States probably is from the gang of thuggery that this president has incited to violence over the four years, and especially around this election, that exists domestically in the United States. We cannot sugarcoat what is going on. The guy is absolutely off his rocker. All right. How do you really feel, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, moving on, he did make one trip recently to Georgia on behalf of the uh, Senate candidates there. Uh, will he make another one? Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that he's, uh, he's planning to make another one. Um, I'm sure that his political advisors would love if he would, you know, do some of the other things that could be politically helpful uh, right about now that uh, we were just talking about. But uh, he, he does appear interested in, in continuing to insert himself in that race. All right. Okay, go, go ahead, Alicia. I was going to say, you know, there's an argument, does it help or does it harm? And I don't necessarily know the answer. I, I've worked special elections for U.S. Senate before, and the most difficult thing about them is knowing who's going to turn out. And it's a very difficult formula. You're normally wrong in some capacity, but it goes back to who's going to turn out and is it, does Trump help with those who are going to turn out or harm? And that's what some very smart people in Georgia are trying to figure out right now when they decide how involved they want him to be. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point, because one of the interesting things you've seen in uh, recent weeks is it's sort of like that, the, the dog that didn't bark in the Sherlock Holmes story. There's the polls that weren't taken uh, in Georgia. We saw nothing but inundation of polls in the run up to November 3rd. And it's been like a ghost town in Georgia. And I think what that's a recognition of what, Alicia, you were just talking about, is that all these pollsters have a likely voter model and they just, that's how they do their poll. That's sort of the secret sauce. And they don't really know what to do with it in this special. They have no idea who's going to turn out. So far, the early voting, the numbers I've seen suggest that Democrats, registered Democrats are ahead in the early voting, which is the same pattern that we saw in the general election in the run up to November 3rd. However, it's not by as much of a margin as they were up in the general election. And so we just don't really know how it's going to turn out. How should we read the Trump veto threat on the defense authorization bill over an unrelated argument over regulations on social media companies? Paul? Well, it's simply an example of Trump um, uh, uh, turning to his what he considers his own self-interest uh, which always is about taking revenge 
um, for for slights or what he perceives as disloyalty. Um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people will would agree that the large social media companies, which um, the Justice Department is now looking at for antitrust actions, um, need to be more highly regulated. Uh, they control so much of what we see and think these days. Uh, it's hard not to think about regulating them. But that's not why he wants to. He doesn't want to for any greater good. He wants to because he's upset because Twitter posts warnings about his off-the-wall tweets, and he thinks that the other social media companies have been limiting his ability to, uh, to, to, to do his crazy rants. So his self-interest dictates for him what he does, and he says, okay, fine, I'm going to veto the defense authorization bill. It's, uh, it's simply another example of an unhinged authoritarian uh, making threats which uh, are no doubt in the end idle. Matt, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a, another example of kind of a bizarre pursuit of a white whale that he is not going to successfully uh, harpoon. Um, you know, it, it's already been signaled from bipartisan majorities, both Republicans and Democrats, in both the House and Senate, that there are the votes there to override his veto for someone who famously does not want to lose ever, does not want to be seen as a loser. It seems a little weird to walk into this uh, Alamo-like trap uh, that you're going to uh, uh, veto something that that your own party is going to vote to, to turn around on you. Um, so that's a, that's a little bit strange. I do think it's kind of an interesting tea leaf that you would never have thought, given the amount of sway that President Trump holds over the Republican Party. And, you know, what Republican friends of mine who I kind of talked to off the record say was some legitimate fear among candidates that a Trump tweet would would come in and wreck their careers. Given that whole dynamic of recent years, it is interesting that one of the final acts of his presidency could be Republicans just saying, no, we're, we're not too worried about that. Uh, we're going to override your veto. Not sure what that says for the future of Trump's standing in the party. You know, I actually do think that the liability protections on social media companies are way too broad. Um, and I think they should be corrected. Uh, I go back to my argument about the COVID relief bill. What does it have to do with the defense authorization bill? And that's my thing. And, and this isn't about Republicans or Democrats doing one or the other. They all do it. And I think there's got to be a reset. Will we stop um, either pushing or preventing the passage of one piece of legislation based on something that is unrelated? Because then it's used politically, right? Then it's, oh, you supported, you know, you were opposed to the defense authorization bill. No, maybe I was just opposed to removing limited liability protections for social media. It's a political game. And I, I think we need, Washington needs to clear itself up and start keeping bills related to each other, with each other, and stop putting in extra stuff. And finally, in the couple of minutes we have left, uh, does Attorney General Barr's announcement that there was no election fraud, he would not seize voting machines and not appoint a special counsel, does this mark the beginning of the end of the issue of, uh, you know, is there is there voter fraud? Is this is this it? Are we finally done with it? No. Nope. Or is it going to linger? 
no, <laughs> no, no, and no. <laughs> you know, I'll, no, I, no. There, there's a famous, no. there's a famous case study in psychology. Uh, there was a book written about it called "When Prophecies Fail," following a cult in uh, 1954 that believed that the world was going to end in a flood and a UFO was going to come pick them up. And when doomsday did not happen. The, the famous finding from the study was that the adherents to this cult not only did not drop their belief in it, they actually doubled down. They, they redoubled their efforts. And the leader of the cult continued to make hay out of this whole you know crazy psychological construct for another 30 or 40 years. Uh, so you know I, I, I don't think that there is a, a big chance that a core set of believers in this whole kind of conspiracy theory about the election is ever going to let this die. Maybe it'll begin to get confined to a increasingly small portion of the internet, but who knows? I, 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 my hopes are not high. Are anybody's hopes high? <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think 2021 is going to be a better year. And you can, one can only hope that with a Biden-Harris administration, uh, gradually there is uh, at least a, a, some growth in the uh, we're going to be um, sane side of politics and some diminishing strength um, in, the, in the Trumpeter movement, um, which is really uh, a fringe, but a, <laughs> a pretty large fringe. And that'll do it for uh, this edition of Politics Roundtable. For Paul Hodes, Matt Robeson, and Alicia Preston, I'm Ken Kale. Happy holidays from WKXL.